Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's good to be back with you again today. All right, so today I, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, sort of disillusionment in general, which I think may be a good thing that's happening. And then also I wanted to do a, a lengthy rant about some subject that I want to get into for this podcast and really to for the foreseeable future. Basically, it's a new project that I'm working on about trying to figure out the mystery of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast of Daniel 7, Revelation 13, 17, and 12 to a lesser degree. So um, it's a really complicated topic. I'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let's talk about disillusionment. So yeah, by disillusionment, I just mean that things are not going the way that we want them to in the world. And I think it's becoming apparent that they aren't going to get any better. And my thesis for this short segment will be that hallelujah for that. To become disillusioned in these things isn't a bad thing. It will help us to become uh, wise as serpents and gentle as doves. And it's a good thing. So, for example, with politics, why, uh, the faith in, in, in this political system, while I agree, was probably the best of of the political systems around, but we've been ruled by some pretty evil people for a long time now. I've been disillusioned with politics for some time. I think I got kind of sucked back into it because of Donald Trump, because he was an outsider for the, as I've said, the first time in my life, I've known this guy definitely wasn't a part of the club and sort of, sort of sucked me back into caring a little bit, but I was a much better everything when I didn't care. I was much more <laughs> I was much more effective uh, at at ministry and everything else when I was focused on that because I, as a given, as a, I just understood that that system was broken and it was evil and it was and all those people were evil. You know, with with Joe Biden, it, it still gets me because he is so obviously evil, and I'm not just talking about corrupt stuff. I mean, it just the sickness that's come out about. I mean, obviously hit him and the, the video stuff and his son and. All that stuff is just absolute sick and he's corrupt or whatever. But then I remember, oh yeah, I think that they're, I mean, technically I think that they are all a part of this, this group that grew up in this satanic system and, you know, whatever. I have sort of extreme views about that. So in my worldview, they've been like that for a long, long time as that club is, is pretty awful. But I think it's good to be disillusioned in the government. And it makes you more effective, not less effective. And, and and I think that goes for some of the other things that are happening too. Putting too much faith in it fixing the problem. I listened to a, a podcast, uh, Media Monarchy with James Evan Pilato. Uh, and he talks about sometimes about how when the, when the party that's in power, the people in that party sort of go to sleep. And it's the ones that... Uh, that are out of power that sort of get awakened politically. And I think that's true to a certain extent, but what I don't want to necessarily get awakened politically, although that's going to happen for the sort of that, that, that subset. But as a Christian, I want to be, I want to shut that part of my brain off. And functionally how that looks for me is like getting back into, instead of listening to 20 podcasts about, you know, current events a day, uh, I can listen to the things I need to grow as a Christian because that's a really important thing. Sometimes I was thinking the other day, I got this, uh, this app, a Bible reading app. It's an audio Bible app. It's called, uh, 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 dwell. And it's really good. Like really good. You can choose between like five different readers. It costs some money. I think you got to pay a one-time subscription or maybe it's a yearly subscription. I don't know. And this is not an ad, but, uh, 
But I, I love it because you can, unlike so much an Audible, which I, why they don't have an Audible Bible where you can just choose the chapter and whatever, listen to it as your, as your leisure like that, I don't know. But you can do that with this. And anyway, so I'm listening to it. I'm going through. I've been trying to read through the minor prophets. Um, and it's interesting to me because I'm at a place where, with Bible reading where I don't need to be explained the basics anymore. I, I can jump right into a Hosea or an Amos or something that I know because of the illusions. Oh, and we're talking about Assyria now and the references to him, you know, you know, Sennacherib taking the northern kingdoms and Ephraim. And I know what that means. And I know what's going to happen next is Babylon is going to come for Judea and, and, and everything else. And I know the whole story and the backstory and that fundamental stuff. So it's not, in other words, all that's left for me now is just to listen and get the meat out of it. I've done so much work in the head knowledge of knowing that it's criminal basically for me not to know everything I can about the Old Testament. I don't know as much as I need to. But anyway, some more disillusionment things. I want to talk about things like, you know, QAnon is a good example. I, I've never really been a Q thing. I don't even know where you go get Q drops, but I do know basically everything that you would know about Q for the most part because I'm in this world, obviously. And I think there's a lot of disillusionment there. I mean, the trust the plan concept clearly wasn't you know, to be trusted and the, you know, William Barr and all that stuff is just never panned out, or at least it doesn't look like it. It might, I suppose, but I'm sure that there's some excuse for that. Uh, there's disillusionment within the, you know, the prophets in, in general, I, I would say, uh, you know, with the Dana Coverstone stuff and not just Dana Coverstone, there were, you know, a lot of sort of minor prophets to, for lack of a better word, around that same time too. And I was talking to my sister and during uh, Christmas and she was kind of, she kind of got involved in listening to a lot of those sort of, you know, local and minor prophets that seemed right. Cause they would get things right up and, you know, and really the kind of things that they were getting right was just stuff that you could get right. If you were following the news and you could just, just read, you know, wind the tape forward a little bit and say, this is going to happen. And I'm not saying that those people were doing that for anything, a negative reason. It's kind of, like I said, in that podcast that they called here come the prophets where in the Pentecostal world, that's kind of what they consider prophecy to be. They are genuine people. They just, they're taking what they see in their flesh and they, they're calling it prophecy because that's what they're sort of told is prophecy. So you can be totally genuine. So that's not the criteria to say, oh, this person is totally genuine. This person would never lie. Uh, you know, Pentecostal prophecies are a dime a dozen and they're, they're totally genuine. Some of them may be right, but you just need to know that. And anyway, that was a big disillusionment for my sister. And I was thinking, my sister's okay or whatever about it. But I think to some people, Dana Coverstone or whoever not being right could have big problems there. And to that end, it's not as good of an upside and being disillusioned with that stuff. But I think it kind of is, especially in the rapture dream sort of thing. That's I've talked about it here before, too. Like if you go on YouTube right now, rapture dreams is a genre and no two are alike. <laughs> I mean, there's no consistency. Actually, I think that it's interesting that there is some consistency too. Uh, but they're, they f were feeding off each other. And there was a lot of feeding off of Dana Coverstone, you could tell, during, during the height of that, that moment, is they were, they were sort of assuming Dana Coverstone was going to be right. So they were sort of like piggybacking off it. Uh, and I know that the other end of that was being, I, I'm sure there's a million excuses. But um, as I say in that podcast, uh, when I first talked about Dana Coverstone, I was sort of skeptical from the beginning, but it didn't mean that I wasn't going to prepare because there was something about what he was saying. 
Not that any of these things that he said wasn't stuff that I had already called basically publicly here on this podcast that I thought were going to be a part of it. But it's in fact because of that, because I still believe that those things to some extent, maybe not the specific things, you're talking about blue helmets or whatever, but all that stuff is coming. And so as I said in that podcast, there wasn't a lot of downside to to mentioning it. It's sort of kind of hedging your bets, number one, in case it was true. But then also that the net result of of believing it would be that you prepared, did your normal prepper stuff. But yeah, I mean, there's just no way around it. He was definitely wrong. You can't um, you can't make an excuse for it. You can't say, ah, oh, God really meant another time. I think probably the best you could do is say, ah, oh, people prayed about it so much that God relented, and certainly that's possible. But uh, but no, but no, he was wrong, and that's gonna cause some disillusionment. And where I think that actually is good is especially in the the wrong-headed sort of Western view of the rapture specifically and persecution specifically in the pre-trib model specifically. Um, I actually don't think pre-tribulationalism itself will be dissolution. There's going to go through a major, uh, uh, if it was stock, I would be buy, buy, buy right now with pre-trib. It's going to go, it's going to go into a bubble before it pops. And the reason is, is because they're just, they're just all assuming right now is the end times that it's right now. There's no, the, the rapture is any second. It's at this fever pitch. If it was like a needle, it would just be just, just redlining. I think maybe I'm mixing metaphors there, but the point is pre-trib will be disillusioned, but it's kind of like in the book of Hebrews, they haven't yet resisted to the point of blood. And I see us losing a lot of battles in the, uh, in the near term. And we've got a lot of battles to lose. Think about it. The vaccine thing is just going to happen. Um, and it's going to be really bad. And think about people that are going to get it. What is the social the social outgrowth of that? Run the tape forward a little bit. They're going to be so smug. They're going to demand out of you that you do. And of course, they're going to make you not be able to participate in any reindeer games or anything because you haven't taken the vaccine. And so you're going to be hated more. And then, of course, when they do, if and when they do get sick or whatever, they'll never believe that. They're going to believe the propaganda lie that comes with it while they're dying. It's going to be your fault. <laughs> Guaranteed. It's not going to be because they got the vaccine. Because how could you ever believe, if you were a smug person, that the thing that you did was wrong and you put your kids in da at danger and you're whatever and you're an idiot? That's not going to be the conclusion you're going to come to. I guarantee it. So whatever negative stuff happens, Happens with that is just going to be blamed on us. Uh, the lies and the propaganda itself is going to just be complete losing battles from from here on out. Sure, we're going to win some battles, but the war is is not looking good, guys. The hatred in general of Christians is going to grow now that Trump's out of the way. The eye of Sauron, as it were, is going to be more focused on us, particularly and specifically, be, probably because and a result of the vaccine, it's going to be sort of normalcy would be possible if Christians weren't around. Uh, Christians think it's the mark of the beast or whatever, so they're the dum dums and we're the smart smarts. Then you got the censorship. That's that's going to get worse and worse and worse. Those battles are going to be lost and lost and lost and lost and lost. So the benefit of, of being disillusioned is, if it's done in a healthy context, I should say, or qualify it with, uh, then you get 
action. Um, for example, in the censorship thing, understanding that there's no one going to fix the problem for you that you're going to elect and they're just going to make censorship go away. It, it creates activism. It creates action uh, for you when you recognize, hey, the church is all we really have. Let's work together with the church. And there's some interesting things that I'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. There's some interesting things uh, happening about that. Okay, so let's get into part of what I sort of transition here is that one of the things I've, I've started doing as a result of like, hey, look, what I'm going to do now that I'm disillusioned with this is I need to focus on what I do well. You know, I, I, you got a million different places that can give you analysis of the news or political whatever and, and activism stuff in that way. But what I do is I do, you know, analysis and, and, and study of the Bible, particularly Bible prophecy uh, lately. So that's what I'm going to do. And I, as a result, I decided to take on a subject that has daunted me for as long as I can remember. And that is the seven-headed, ten-horned beast in the book of Revelation. Now, on the one hand, I'm pretty confident that I know what it is in a macro sense. I have virtually um, no questions that in some sense it's the Antichrist. At least one of those heads is the Antichrist who gets the deadly wound, etc. Uh, the beast is referred to euphemistically the first beast all throughout the, the book of Revelation as a reference to the person of the Antichrist. So I know in one sense, the answer is it's the Antichrist. But in another sense, there is so many details about the seven-headed, ten-horned aspect of this beast, both here in the book of Revelation and in Daniel, if Daniel is in fact intended to be understood as, as related to this beast, which I would argue it kind of has to be, which I'll get into in a minute, then there are many aspects that can give us a lot more information about the Antichrist. But every, every time I try to come up with an idea of what each of these heads represent or try to work out some of the other problems that we'll get into, it, it never ends up clicking with all the other details. And it is so taxing on my brain that I feel like it's just there's, there's some kind of lock to this mystery. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that verse 9 in Revelation 17 starts off with this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is and the other is not yet to come. And I know, I know many of you are thinking, Chris, it's this thing or it's that thing. I'm telling you, if you think it is a thing and you don't know some of the things that we're going to talk about today, it, it's very likely that what you believe is contradicted by some other aspect of this. In my commentaries, I never, I never uh, came up with a reference. For example, uh, of the five heads, five of fallen, one is. In my commentary, I simply said, you know, this is probably referring to five sort of satanic manifestations of the Antichrist in history, if we're to understand these as kings and not kingdoms or whatever. Uh, they would probably be particularly blasphemous. But every time I tried to do a traditional sort of Bible study, the same kind of methods and hermeneutics that has, has yielded me proof that I'm on the right track in other instances, it always ends up with nothing. None of the, none of the normal methods I use seem to yield results with not just that, but it's actually interesting in the book of Daniel also in Daniel 7, 
where we have the four beasts rising out of the sea one like a lion one like a four-headed leopard one like a uh uh, a, a, a bear with three ribs in its mouth and and the diverse beef, beast with ten horns. Even in that commentary, I simply said, here are what I think these symbols would mean for the person who will eventually figure out what this means, but I don't know what it means. Because, and I, I have tried. I've looked up every aspect of that. What are the three, the three ribs, bear studies, and leopard studies, and every kind of study you can do in the Bible to see if the Bible is giving you some kind of clue to this. And it's just, as far as I can see, it's no help. Um, and the traditional views, I mean, read, read commentaries and you're going to get some pretty diverse uh, opinions on this. I think the traditional view, which we'll talk about that these are to be equated with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, I think a lot of you are probably thinking, oh, Chris, this is probably your weird theory about Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 not being the same thing that, that's caused new problems. If you would just take that traditional view, everything would be fine. Look, I'm okay. I, I, I'll go back to the traditional view if you can prove to me that this works. I think when we get into this, you'll see that the problems with the traditional view that this is uh, you know, Babylon and Medo-Persia are, are what much, much more significant than just the beasts seem to live on for a time in the millennium. And we'll get into all that stuff. But I basically want to get a couple points across. This is a huge problem. And I don't think I've ever heard of anybody solving it. And when I finally sat down to be like, I've got to figure this out. It just started pouring notes, 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 not even organized notes. It's hard for me to even, you might be able to get a sense of this, to even articulate what the problems are. Um, there's a lot here. And, I, and so what I'm going to try to do in this podcast is just use it as an excuse to figure this out and to maybe try to tackle it in bite-sized chunks. Like, for example, one po podcast might just be talking about the Ten Kings. What do we know about the Ten Kings? And I think, I think if this is going to be figured out, it's got to be, there's got to be like a list made of here are the things that must be true about the Ten Kings. And that list is much longer than you might think. And then let's go from there, you know, or whatever. So right now I have a big list of things that must fit these passages. And, uh, and, if, and, you know, to find out where the contradictions are and stuff like that. I'm nowhere near ready for this stuff. But I think one way to talk through some of the problems is to go through, well, I don't know, where should we start? I'll just mention a couple different options. And, I, and maybe I should start by just giving the, the overview of what's happening in these passages. So let's start in Daniel 7. As I mentioned, uh, four beasts appear out of the sea. Um, one is like a, a lion. It has its wings plucked off. It's told to stand on its feet. It's given a heart of a man. Uh, one is like a, a, a bear with raised up on one side, has three ribs in its mouth. It's told to go out and devour much flesh. You've got the, the leopard with four heads. It's got wings, I think, as well. And then you've got the Antichrist beast in which it's this, this beast with iron teeth and, uh, and it, it's got ten horns and one little horn uproots three of them and the little horn is the Antichrist. He speaks, speaks blasphemous words. It continues for three and a half years. It's clearly the Antichrist. Now, as I mentioned, in Revelation, uh, uh, that same beast appears multiple times. It's mentioned specifically in Revelation 12, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, where it talks about, let me just read Revelation 13, 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns. 
and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon who had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, etc., etc. Now, there's a lot of interesting things are happening there because we know, I could argue and I should argue very strongly that the writer of the book of Revelation wants us to equate what Daniel said with this. And the reason I know that is first, but in order to do that, we need to understand that those four beasts that I talked about before, one of them, th that's seven heads because the, the leopard had four heads and there were three other beasts. So that's, so what's, so they were all put together and now they got seven heads and 10 horns because as I mentioned, the last uh, diverse beast had 10 horns already and the little horn came out of it and everything else. So Revelation expects us to understand that that's an amalgamation of it. And it's further reiterated because it was like a leopard, it was like a bear, it was like a lion, which was all three of those other types of, of, of beasts. In addition, it adds other details such as um, the three and a half years. It was allowed to continue three and a, 42 months. That was a thing that was mentioned in both Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. The war on the saints was uh, reiterated and the blasphemous words were reiterated. So we've got so many details that's just incontrovertible that we're supposed to understand this this set of beasts with the other. But then all kinds of problems happen as a result of that. If you if you assume, okay, well, see, back there, the little horn was the Antichrist, but here the head is the Antichrist. Are these kings or kingdoms? Because in one, it's clearly kingdoms, in one, it clearly is kings. And it, it's never as simple as like, well, let's just make them kingdoms then, or let's just make one king. Everything has a problem and the reference notwithstanding. So I think what I'm going to do here is just, I think I'm first going to go through some of the theories. The theory that I'm going to start with to an extent is one that I think is defensible, uh, but has its contradictions. And that is that Satan is the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. But each human, that each of the heads is kind of a human representative that may or may not also be a kingdom. I, I actually think that the Bible demands that you understand that, that it has the free will to change king and kingdom at, at certain points. But I also think that it's clearly, as a sort of general rule of thumb, uh, you could almost always say that horns are individuals and the beast itself is typically the kingdom, but not always. And you... I think kind of have to have the heads be kings and not kingdoms. But again, there are some passages that sort of demand that you don't take that too seriously. So that's why I say it like that. Satan is the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Revelation 12 calls the seven-headed, ten-horned beast with ten diadems Satan. But at the same time, we know it's not Satan because Satan is thrown alive with the Antichrist, uh, the, the first beast and the second beast, into they're they're all they're they're not like Clark Kent and Superman they're on the same place at the same time in that instance also in the instance where the 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 ritual where they the spirits of frogs come out of their mouth and they gather the kings together for the battle of Armageddon both Satan the dragon the uh, the the first beast and the second beast are in that situation so they're definitely distinct but 
because of Revelation 12, Satan has to essentially be the beast himself. However, the Bible also refers to the beast. Now, it goes on to say one of the heads is a mortal wound. And I think what's happening is it's saying this head is the Antichrist. He has the mortal wound um, that's healed and he's speaking blasphemous words. The same thing that the little horn did in Daniel 7. So that's why the perfect match has trouble. Unless the ten horns on that head, he is actually one of those, then the head itself maybe can be more of a kingdom as long as he is one of the ten kings. But there's a problem with that because the ten kings are discussed in Revelation 17 as sort of autonomous different kings. They, are, they do not have authority. They are given authority by the beast, the Antichrist, for a specific hour. They hate the woman, the blah, blah, blah. So they, the ten kings are are there and they've got an uprooted problem. We'll talk about that in the, in the 10, 10 horn section. I never even got through my definition. You can tell me what, what was happening here. Uh, so Satan is, is the beast, but each head is a human representative that may or may not be a kingdom. So for example, the head in this theory, this that I'm going to try to first show the pros and cons of is the heads are, are most likely Kings past manifestations of the antichrist. Think of John and first John, what, uh, four, something like that, where he's talking about, um, you know, one, uh, antichrists were in the world even then, but, uh, there have been many other antichrists. So in other words, so maybe antichrist has appeared as a king's for, say, for the sake of argument, Pharaoh or, uh, Antiochus, that maybe in one sense that was Satan in some special way manifesting on the earth to do something, uh, very antichrist-like. Whatever that criteria is, is kind of one of the problems in Bible study that I'm having to determine exactly what that criteria is. In one sense, I think it's the blasphemous names on the heads is maybe the, 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 the key to this. If I could find in the Bible key moments of manifestations of kings of kingdoms that were characterized by blasphemy, but that's difficult because a word study of blasphemy in the Septuagint or Greek or even just doing an English study on blasphemy don't yield the kind of results that would explain any of that. So it, if it is that, it would have to be non-word study based. And maybe that's why it requires wisdom. You have to know the Bible better than I do. Uh, anyway, so continuing with my definition, with the seventh and final head being the man we call the Antichrist, the ten horns are ten human kings of Revelation 17 that are given power by the Antichrist in the final kingdom. I think the ten horns I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty darn confident in. I don't think I have any issues with the ten horns being the human kings that we see in Revelation 17. My only problem with them, as I mentioned earlier, the how to deal with the uprooted nature in the vision part of Daniel 7, where the little horn comes up and in doing so, he uproots three of the ten kings. But then later in the definition, it seems that they don't, the uprooted may have been a little too strong to read too much into that vision because it uses a word that's essentially the equivalent of, uh, of humiliated or something like that. But they appear if Daniel 7 is to be directly equated to Revelation to still be there. So it's almost like he conquers the 10 kings, but never really becomes one of them. He, he sort of is over and above them to some degree. He, he, he uses three in some way to conquer them. There, this humiliation or uprooting of them 
conquers them, but but he doesn't become one of them. And the little horn, you know, and that's one of the problems with, with making this a perfect match is the little horn is now, he's clearly the head. The little horn was speaking blasphemous words. It, it was three and a half years. It was warring on the saints in Daniel 7. But those same attributes are attributed to the head that gets the mortal wound over in uh, Revelation. Okay, so the pros to an idea like that is it's logical to assume that all the heads of Revelation 13, the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, are human since one of its head, heads gets a mortal wound. This uh, head seems to be uh, become synonymous with the beast since the world is forced to worship the beast whose deadly wound was healed. Revelation 13, 14. The very, very concept of getting a mortal wound implies that the head is mortal. Um, if one of the heads is human, it's logical to assume that they all are. And that's maybe too big of a reach, but I think it's logical to assume that if he is human, then they all are. And maybe human might be too strong of a word. I'm not saying that they can't be, that the Antichrist maybe could be some sort of demonic being or angel or something like that. I'm not necessarily, this, this particular view doesn't necessarily preclude that, but I am saying it's an individual. And I think that the New Testament, especially Pauline writings and Jesus's writings in the Olive Discourse, writings, his, his, his message on the Olive Discourse, definitely lets us know we're talking about an individual here that, that has these same attributes, the three and a half years, the deadly uh, wound, and the, uh, the uh, uh, blasphemous words, etc. the war on the saints. Another reason why that's a this is a good argument, a pro for it, is it jives with Revelation 17.10, which says that the seven heads are seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. I know people always run around trying to find which, which uh, city is sitting on seven hills, which is just a total reformer thing. Uh, if you guys could read the commentaries just to know how how much that has impacted modern prophecy is the reformers. And I love the reformers. I love reformation theology about the gospel and stuff like that. But on prophecy, man, they did more damage than, than, than a lot of stuff. I think in some sense, the mountains there, because it says there's seven mountains. I'm not taking that away from it. It's not like it doesn't say that the seven heads are seven mountains, but it also says they are seven kings. And I don't, I, mountains is a big piece to this puzzle somehow. It may even end up being the key to it. I don't know. But they are definitely kings too. Now we get into the kings or kingdoms argument. And for the sake of argument here, I'm going to say that kings means kings here because it makes the most sense out of this. It's a pro here because getting the mortal wound, the other aspects of making it seem like the head itself is the Antichrist. So I'm good with, with that. So, so that's a, a pro for it. Um, uh, it also suggests that Satan has, uh, what did I say here? It suggests that Satan has throughout history made specific appearances as a man. That would be a logical outgrowth of that. This makes the beast, uh, this, this makes the best sense of the resurrection Rosetta Stone theory. Okay, this is something I just came up with a name here. I called it the resurrection Rosetta Stone theory, which tries to make sense of a number of verses. Okay, so the Rosetta Stone, if you know in history, it was found by, I think, Napoleon's troops. It was the first time that they were able to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics because you had this passage and written in Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they also had it written in Greek and some other language, maybe Akkadian or something like that, uh, when they knew the other two languages, but they didn't know. So they were able to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics because of that. And I think that something is happening here 
if you take a number of different verses, Revelation 13.3, Revelation 13.12, Revelation 13.14, and Revelation 17.8, and Revelation 17.11. By themselves, you wouldn't necessarily know what they're trying to say. But if you put them all together, they're interpreting one another, and the logical outgrowth of that interpretation is that the Antichrist uh, is rising from the dead, and that is a title that he has been given. It's one of the reasons that the world worships him. I know, and this is in somewhat to distinguish from the idea that is a lot of taken because of one of these verses, which is uh, Revelation 17, 8, of him rising from the bottomless pit. And that is kind of a theory that we're going to talk about at some point um, that I think maybe makes a little too much of that. Uh, I think it's he does rise from the bottomless pit, but I think what's being uh, said there is just another way to say the same thing that all these other verses are saying, that he that his title essentially is the one who came back to life. Kind of like, in a sense, uh, it's sort of a, a satanic play on the first part of Revelation where Jesus said he is the one who is and or was and is and is to come. And I think which is probably referring to his resurrection. I think you could maybe parse that another way, but probably not. In any case, uh, so these verses read as follows. Revelation 13, 3. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. I've got a couple things highlighted there. Uh, one of his heads has a mortal wound, which it will say is the, it doesn't quite, and its mortal wound was healed, which is going to be the resurrection portion of this. Another part I have highlighted is the whole earth, uh, and that's because it's the earth dwellers, which is a specific term in the book of Revelation to essentially refer to those people who are not in the book of life there, the earth dwellers and the non-earth dwellers, that is, those who are saved. And then they have marveled as they followed the beast. Those, so we've got the title, the one whose mortal wound was healed. We've got the earth dwellers and we've got the marveling as they followed the beast. Next verse, it exercises the first beast all the authority of the, what, the second beast, actually. The second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So here we're just sort of understanding that there is, again, it just says his mortal wound was healed as sort of an honorific here. Uh, But the earth dwellers are here, although the specific term earth dwellers is not used there, I don't think. Uh, Revelation 13, 14 uh, let's see. And the, by the signs that that it is, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So again, they didn't have to say wounded by the sword and yet lived. It's just it becomes a title for him, and the earth dwellers are doing that to worship him. Revelation 17, 18, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundations of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This is a really key thing. Before I get to it, I'll just read the next one. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. So there's a number of between those two, the goes to destruction is the same thing. In fact, they're the exact same line. The beast that you saw was and is not, it's about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. 
versus the beast that was and is not is an eighth and belongs to the seventh and it goes to the destruction. The only difference there is one says rise from the bottomless pit and one says was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. Which I'm saying is the Rosetta Stone aspect of that is that that means the same thing. Rise from the bottomless pit can be shown from scripture to mean resurrect from the dead. Jesus was said to rise from the bottomless pit uh, when he resurrected from the dead. Uh, sorry, I don't have the scripture on hand. You could just do a study of this, do a study of abyss. Uh, other instances, uh, this is in my commentary as well, going through the instances to, to show you from scripture, it can mean rising from the bottomless pit can mean uh, uh, to resurrect from the dead. Resurrection from the dead clearly has been a theme as we've been reading about this seven-headed, ten-headed beast whose mortal wound was healed and yet did live and people marvel. And that's actually one interesting thing in Revelation 17, uh, 8, because the dwellers of the earth, and it also calls it, go oh well, and the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And I would submit that you can take that Rosetta Stone concept of why do the earth dwellers marvel at the beast? Well, go back to what we read there in Revelation 13, 3. But its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth, the earth dwellers marveled as they followed the beast. The marveling, we were told earlier, was because his mortal wound was healed. That interprets the earth dwellers marveling in Revelation 17 because he was and is not and is to come. But I need to be very careful not to be too dogmatic about this. And I think if, if I'm ever going to figure this out, I need to hold very loosely any theory that I have here, as much as I think it makes good sense, I have to be willing to let the other uh, things speak for themselves in scripture. W one thing with, if you believe that the rising of the from the bottomless pit in Revelation 17 is to be equated with the healing of the beast's wound, and by the way, if you're having trouble with that concept of the Antichrist rising from the dead, um, read a paper called "Can Satan Raise the Dead?" toward a biblical view of the beast's wound. I read the paper, reread the paper the other day. It doesn't go quite as much detail as I'd like him to on the aspect that the reason I usually recommend that paper. He talks more about the concept of the it's a necessity that the Antichrist and the false prophet have resurrection bodies in order to be sent into hell. Uh, and that's why it says they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And uh, it talks about the doctrine of hell, essentially, that the great white throne judgment and the resurrection of the unjust dead has to happen before they are put into hell and blah, blah, blah. But he does come to the conclusion that I want people to read, which is a lot of reading to get to the point, which is that it is God who resurrects, that it's not a pretend resurrection. He really does resurrect from the dead. It is the great delusion that God sends, specifically, read 2 Thessalonians 2, he does it so that people will believe the lie. And it's uh, it's done specifically for the reasons he outlines there. But that's, that's my theory. But again, my point is, I don't want to hold too tightly on any of this stuff. I want to be willing to say, well, maybe the coming from the bottomless pit is speaking of Apollyon and the bottomless pit in Revelation, uh, uh, what is it, 9-11? In other words... In Revelation 9:11, it says they have, speaking of the the, the locust-like beings that are that come out of the abyss. When the angel in the uh, fifth trumpet unlocks the abyss, all these locusts go out and they they kill people. They they're described in great detail. Locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. And they 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 go out and they torment people that don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. Then it says they have a king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek it is called Apollyon, which essentially means the destroyer. 
So the counter argument to what I just said would say, well, maybe the, the, the coming out of the bottomless pit, the abyss, am I just saying that this is a coincidence that over here you've got somebody coming out of the bottomless pit and over here I've just said, well, that uh, the one that was and is and comes out of the bottomless pit and goes into destruction and that means resurrection. Well, I think, again, I think that you can absolutely show that with the Rosetta Stone theory, but I would say, yeah, I think that it is just kind of in this current theory, which I'm willing to bend on, and I'm going to go through this theory, for example, in, in one of these podcasts, and we're just going to talk about this theory, and we're going to go through the, the pros and cons of the Abaddon is the Antichrist or, or uh, some other uh, fallen angel type thing associated with the Antichrist or whatever. The first reason I'm not too big on this theory that uh, Apollyon or Abaddon in, in Revelation 9 is the Antichrist is the timing of the event. This occurs at the fifth trumpet. It, it lasts five months. The fifth trumpet, everyone would agree, is well within the wrath of God. Uh, nearly all sides would agree that the fifth trumpet is, is well after the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. Hal Lindsey sort of had a, a take on this, which was similar, that he thought the, the Antichrist would be possessed by Apollyon that came from the bottomless pit at this point in the timeline, that uh, the Antichrist needed to be possessed for some reason by this, this angel. I think maybe he said the angel was Satan or something like that. In any case, there was a possession of the Antichrist at this point. That was sort of Hal Lindsey's take, if I remember correctly. And... So number one, I don't see any reason that the Antichrist needs to be possessed by an angel from the bottomless pit. I mean, he probably is possessed by Satan in, in a real way, but why would that need to happen at the fifth trumpet as opposed to any other time? There's no other biblical reason for him to be possessed. And if there was, I you know, you might be able to make a case at the midpoint. Maybe there's a change there and the Antichrist from his covenant maybe gets possessed at the midpoint. But this isn't at the midpoint. It's at the fifth trumpet after the wrath of God has started. Started. There's really nothing else for him to do except for Armageddon at this point. So the concept of him being possessed or any significance to the fifth trumpet with regard to the Antichrist seems really difficult to, to deal with. Um, another reason I'm not huge on this theory is that I think it, in context, it's kind of mundane. And what I mean by that is that this angel over the bottomless pit just seems to be a king over the locust-like beings. These locust-like beings have one job for five months to torment people who do not have the seal of God. Um, they need to be told, don't harm anybody else, just harm these these people. And he, the, the, this, this angel is the king over those beings that facilitates this judgment for five months. I don't see any reason for it need, needing to be any bigger than that. And one of the reasons I say that is because nobody has a problem with that concept in the next trumpet, the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates who have been uh, prepared for that hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind for the sixth trumpet. So nobody has a problem with four, four angels who were not given their names, and maybe that's why nobody speculates on them. But there are four angels that are bound there that are released to kill a, a, a mankind, or what is a third of mankind at that point. So it's really more of the same in the next trumpet, angels being prepared to do damage to the earth dwellers um, at a given time. I don't see it needing to be any more uh, uh, serious. In, in addition, sort of related to that, I don't see any particular reason for this angel to even be a bad guy. 
or for those, for that matter, the four angels in the next trumpet to be bad guys. I mean, they're, they're killing bad people. They're executing God's commands against God's enemies. I would say you could probably make the case that the locust-like beings that are from the pit of hell, and that's kind of another thing. We don't even know that the angel that's king over these locust-like beings that definitely come from the bottomless pit, we don't even really know that this angel comes from the bottomless pit. He's just king over them. They certainly need somebody to tell them what to do to obey God's laws because otherwise they apparently would torment the people who had the mark of God on their forehead. So maybe his only job is to make sure these rabid dog-like beings, demonic beings from the pit of hell do what they're commanded to do by God, which doesn't sound like something Satan would do, but it could be. <laughs> Again, I'm not, I'm not going to say that, that that's the reason not to take this seriously. I want to do an entire podcast just on the, the various theories sort of surrounding this idea that Abaddon is kind of the same thing and, and the, is to be equated with the Revelation 17 verse about coming out of the bottomless, bottomless pit because uh, sort of the weakness of my view would, would be to say that the bottomless pit issue uh, is speaking of resurrection and am I now saying that this is a separate issue that it's just sort of a coincidence that the bottomless pit is mentioned over here with a bad guy coming out of it or ruling over it and I guess yeah I am kind of saying it is a bit of a coincidence um, so that's a weakness I suppose of that view so anyway, I wanted to go into a few other reasons why I think that earlier view had pros and cons. The other, the other pros of the concept that the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is essentially that heads are human kings, um, that Satan is essentially the, the beast itself, <clears throat> is that it seems to jive with Daniel 7, 17, where it says these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So here I'm kind of trying to say that Daniel 7, speaking of those four beasts that arise out of the sea, they're great kings, except that Daniel 7 sort of speaks of the fourth one as a kingdom. It just uses a different word for kingdom. So it's really difficult. I should say that's kind of one of the problems of the contemporaneous versus sort of sub, 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 uh, that's a whole nother issue here. Are those four beasts in Daniel 7 contemporaneous? I've argued that they kind of have to be, but uh, again, for the sake of argument, I'll be willing to do whatever. But I, I think that they have to be for a number of reasons. They are certainly allowed to live on for a time and a season after the uh, the diverse beast is, is thrown into the lake of fire. So um, whatever that means, and if you're going to say that they are the exact same thing as the beast in Revelation, uh, you know, 13 and 17, then you have to then say, when you get to the part in Revelation 17 where it says five have fallen, one is, and one is yet to come, you've got to do some really interesting business with, with that. You've got to say, well, five have fallen if they're human kings and they were contemporaneous back in, in Daniel uh, uh, 7 then you've got to, what, take the four-headed leopard and say he fell along with whatever, dealer's choice, uh, the lion or the bear. And so those five have fallen. One is, therefore, must mean, I don't know, again, dealer's choice, the lion or the bear is, and the one yet to come had to be the diverse beast. Well, at least that part makes sense. Um, and that could be it. It could be. Uh, and I think some of you are saying, oh, Chris, this is so simple if you just go with a traditional view and say that Daniel 2 is the same thing as Daniel 7. The, the beasts aren't contemporaneous. They are uh, Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and Rome, and a revived Roman Empire. Um, fine. I, I'm okay with that, too. I, I'm at the point where I'll, I'll take it. 
But as we get into that, especially, and it's it's so fascinating to read the commentaries when you know when you can see the problems with this. You see how badly some of these commentators are, are just falling all over themselves. You know, you've got to make the five of fallen. You know, you got to make Medo and Persia two separate things to get to five, which makes no sense in any of these things. And again, when we get into to that, I think that it'll be clear that that it can't happen. At least they can be nations, and they may end up being something like. Babylon and Assyria thrown in on one of those, and even if, but then you've got another one you got to get rid of. You got a number of problems, but if I can find a biblical reason to say these are the five we should include and the ones that have fallen, here's the criteria what fallen means. And trust me, I've done a study on every possible aspect of this, I've done a research for fallen or whatever, for example. But to find the criteria of how do we find, you know, trying to come at it from that direction and say, Maybe if we could find just the criteria, then we could find out what they were. If we could find out what we what they were, we can interpret that, and Daniel will fall in line as well. I mean, I, I think that it's interesting if you want to think of it that way. That I that I have never been able to figure out with what Daniel the beasts in Daniel seven are, or the heads on the seven headed ten horned beast. That 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 seems to suggest that they're the same thing, or at least that however you discover them is the same way. A way that I do not know. And again, I want to reiterate. This isn't, this isn't because I believe something weird. I know I've got a lot of weird things that people don't, you know, agree with. But I, I'm, for the sake of argument, I'm saying it's all on the table here. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is that will get me there. And I know some of you are saying, Chris, you know, there's lots of theories out there. There are theories about, oh, it's the, a lot of, a lot of really on the surface stuff about it's America, it's Great Britain. Chris, obviously the lion is on the flag of the Great Britain and you got eagle's wings on a, you know, on something. And so that's whatever. And I don't know what they do. I guess they got to make the tiger be a, the leopard, be a tiger. And I, you know, it's very on the surface level stuff and stuff like, you know, is July 4th. It is in Daniel seven, four. Huh? Think about that, you know, and that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm okay with it being America too. If that's the way this is, then then fine. But I don't. A lot of the argumentation for that stuff isn't take isn't even trying to take into to account any of the contradictions that arise from it. It's just very surface level stuff. Uh, anyway, I didn't get to to some of the other things. I know you guys are getting bored with me, so I'll try to wrap it up here uh, real quick. Some of the things I did want to say. I wanted to get into the the cons here. The cons is that I can't find good biblical proof uh, for the beast of Daniel 7, lion, leopard, bear, as human kings. The text also seems to suggest that they are also kingdoms, 7, 23 through 24, etc., which means that they could be past nations or past kings of nations of whom the Antichrist had particular control. If that is the case, I can't seem to find the key to determine what the criteria is for the Antichrist type king, that is to choose one over and above another. I also can't find any key words that lead to solid conclusions, so something I've sort of already discussed. I wanted to talk real briefly about why I think it's reasonable to assume, although I'm not saying that this is the criteria that I'm always going to be using in this study, but this is what the most preferable option that I would want, and the best match I'm looking for is a perfect match with Daniel 7 and Revelation. And I say this, it is reasonable to assume that there's a perfect match with Daniel 7, though admittedly, assuming that has made this very difficult to reconcile. I say that it's reasonable because of the perfect understanding the author has with other aspects of the Old Testament, Mystery Babylon, allusions to the high priest, and other amazing references that are pitch perfect 
Also, references in, Dan in Revelation 12 has led me to that conclusion. But specifically, the author of Revelation uses many, and I assume it's John, uses many explicit themes from Daniel in Revelation concerning the Antichrist beast, rising out of the sea, seven heads, ten horns, leopard, lion, bear as aspects of the beast, blasphemy on its heads, the three and a half year period, killing of the saints, possibly destroyed by fire in both, diadems on the horns. So the fact that the reader is supposed to equate the two passages is beyond question. But unless a new theory can be developed, I don't think there can be a perfect resolution of the two passages with the beast heads and horns all perfectly matching. But that is the goal. And the reason I say I want to get close, but it's hard with the horn, the, the little horn being one of the horns and, and the head essentially taking that same aspect. So it, 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 very well may be that we're not to assume a perfect match that we're, we need to allow for uh, some some uh, artistic license here but it's not it's not what I'm gonna go for just a couple other things here's some just from my notes things that need to fit the ten ho horns which I consider one of the most consistent things they're human kings that the Antichrist sort of takes over by humbling three of them but later gives them authority they have some authority in his kingdom until the very end and that are used to destroy mystery Babylon because they hate the city if they are the same as the horns of the ones in the fourth beast of Daniel 7 then we need to understand the plucking up by the roots of the three of them in Daniel 7 to be taking over through those three kings but not a supplanting of them uh, the h8 214 Strong's number for humble, or that the 10 kings in Revelation 13 and 17 are at a chronologically earlier time, i.e. before the three are uprooted. This seems unlikely due to the lateness of the 10 kings action in Revelation 13, which can be argued to be the very end of, 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 of the 70th week of Daniel. The kings can't be part of the current system because they only get their kingdom for one hour with the beast in Revelation 17, 12, something that I think a lot of people overlook. Another thing is one of the heads in Revelation 13 is the person of the Antichrist. I think that is fairly incontrovertible. Um, the four beasts in Daniel must be kings that arise out of the earth. And that could be kingdoms. As I say, there's some ambiguity there. Each head has a blasphemous name. 13.1 makes it clear that each one of the heads has a blasphemous name, as I think that might be a key somewhere in there. Another one, comparisons of Daniel 7 and 13 are intended. I already explained that. The earth dwellers marvel because of the deadly wound. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're marveling at the deadly wound that was healed is the same reason they marvel because he was and is not and yet is. You got all kinds of problems with kingdoms there because of the earth dwellers worshiping the Antichrist and marveling at him because he was and is and is not to come. A lot of people have theories about, you know, this nation uh, revived and everybody marveled because, wow, the Roman Empire is back. Who would have guessed? You know, let's marvel and worship the Roman Empire because it's back. You know, I, I know a lot of Jesuit types are, you know, you know, saying, yes, yes, right now. <laughs> That's exactly what's going to happen. Seventh-day Adventists are out there uh, cheering me on. But anyway, so that there's lots of problems with insisting that that aspect has to be nations because in equating that with a deadly wound, because then you have to make a nation have a deadly wound. I know that there's other theories about that. And you've got people marveling because Nebuchadnezzar, wait, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, who do they say? Um, you know, the old king rises from the dead but any kind of thing like that let's say hitler rises from the dead or you know some ancient king arises from the dead people marveling because he rose from the dead again i don't see that as like something that people would 
know and understand like even if he was cloned do they marvel because how do you even prove that if it's a big deal and then he takes over the world it's just it doesn't quite make as much sense as what the seemingly plain evidence is here that he gets a mortal wound that is healed and people worship him because he seems to resurrect from the dead um must fit these passages the beast must fit this passage it calls for mine as wisdom I already talked about that worship of the dragon is the worship of the beast but they are distinct this is an interesting sort of thing and really difficult in revelation 12 where it just calls the seven-headed ten-horned beast with the ten diadems satan uh and anyway, the worship of the dragon, as I mentioned in Revelation 13, they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, but they also worship the beast. It's not quite explained well. The worship, I, again, that's kind of why I lean to the idea that the entire beast is Satan. And in the mystery Babylon, she's writing Satan, essentially. She, her grand idolatry is the worship of, the great, grandest worship of false gods, far worse than she ever did before, which is the reason Assyria destroyed her and Babylon destroyed her. She's finally gone far, too far. And she says she's found her husband and she's found her king, but she has chosen unwisely. And she is, in fact, worshiping uh, Satan through the Antichrist. And I think that makes the best sense of that. And it also makes sense of these ideas that the worship of the dragon is the worship of the beast, but they are distinct. The dragon, beast, and false prophet are different. Revelation 16.3 and Revelation 20, I've mentioned that before, they're, they're both, they're all three in the lake of fire. They're all three at that ritual. Uh, in Revelation 16, 13. If, strong, uh, if the strong delusion is the resurrection, Revelation 17, 18 makes more sense. Uh, that shouldn't really be there. But Daniel 7, beasts, kingdoms seem to be in play. And that what I mean to say there is that I've tried to nail down, say, these must be kings. These must be kingdoms. And that is a fool's errand. You will be, you will be tricked every time. <laughs> Not tricked, that's a bad, bad use of that word, but if you if you demand that that they have to be kings or kingdoms in a certain area, I have not found I I found that to be a very contradictory situation. It, it always seems to trip you up if you demand that beasts are all kings in this situation, even though the, the word is kings and not kingdoms. It uses them interchangeably. Now it's calling them kingdoms over here. That kind of thing is happening. So when I say the kings and kingdoms are in play, certainly in Daniel seven, it has to be. A little bit of both, but I lean more towards kings, but willing to be wrong. Um, it seems that the little horn of Daniel 7 is now to be understood as one of the heads. I know this goes against my perfect match theory, but I think it's a logical exception. Both the little horn and the head speak blasphemous words, uh, kill saints, have authority for three and a half years. It is the beast, not the image of the beast, that gets the wound. Um, I think that was relevant to some other theory somebody was talking about. Dear children, this is the last hour, and I just wanted to put this in there. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And so in context, this is, John says some interesting stuff about the Antichrist, but this kind of fits with the five is fallen and one is. John is essentially, this is the writer of Revelation earlier in First John, his epistle is talking about that there are, you've heard, this is the last hour, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Now, in context, it can be that John is making a prophecy, and I lean that way here, about the thing that he will later on expand on in Revelation 17, five of fallen, one is, and one is yet to come. 
But he could also, because in, in context, he's talking about who is the Antichrist, but one who denies Christ. And by the way, for people who say, oh, Antichrist means against Christ, Chris, you're saying Antichrist. Well, no, it doesn't. Look it up in the lexicon. It, it can mean against Christ. Um, but also, I mean, it, listen to what John just said. He says that uh, who is the Antichrist, but one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So all you have to do is deny that Jesus is the Christ. And actually, it's that concept and reading that in the study that made me sort of resolve an issue that I've always had with my, you know, the, 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 the Antichrist theory. I've always sort of said, well, maybe the Antichrist might, he can do one of two things, and I'm not sure which one. He's going to either say that he is the return of Christ or that Jesus wasn't the Christ, because Jesus didn't fulfill all the messianic kingdom stuff, but he will. And so he is the Christ. And so in order to do that, he John defines the word antichrist, as, but it says who, who just says that Jesus isn't the Christ. Anyway, I'm trying to say that um, that that uh, this this John in that passage is obviously talking about false teachers as well. Uh, so it could be that Jesus, that, that Paul is saying that many antichrists have come, speaking of many false prophets, and probably to some extent he was saying that, but in doing so, he also made a prophecy that he later reiterated in Revelation 17. All right, so in conclusion, just a few show notes. Uh, first, so I'm going to start in the next episode, I'm going to probably cover, I think I'm going to do the traditional view first, so not just the feet and toes and the and the the four beasts being the same thing as Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and and the traditional revived Roman Empire view and that kind of take but also sort of the corollary to that which is sort of the the Islamic Antichrist take on that where you just change out uh, revived Roman Empire for whatever the Islamic Caliphate or however they want to do it with Assyria there's a few different takes on that too but they all have the same problem. So, uh, so I'll kind of take the, the modern views in the next podcast, or at least Lord willing. And then also I wanted to mention, if you know the answer to this, um, shoot me an email at Chris White at, or excuse me, Chris White 79 at protonmail.com. Also, what I'm going to do is post this, just this uh, last section of this podcast on my YouTube channel. And maybe we can use the comment section for sort of uh, trying to refine this idea if you if you know and you'd rather uh, do that kind of publicly that way in the comment section than just do that. Go to YouTube, uh, look up Bible Prophecy Talk, and then you'll find this latest video, which I'll whatever title something about the seven-headed, ten-horned beast, and we can go from there. All right, thanks for listening if you made it this far, and we will see you next time.